What's up, everyone? Welcome back to the Deer Vein Whitetail Series. Today we have Garrett Prawl, the DIY sportsman. Um, you can find him on Instagram and YouTube. He's got a ton of great videos, and we are talking the pre-rut and rut. Before we jump into that, I uh, just want to say thank you to a few of our partners. First one, Vector Custom Shop. If you're looking for good arrows, you, you don't want to do all the math with FOC, or you want to just get an arrow that's built for your bow and not have to play guesswork or figure out if the guy at Bass Pro Shops is telling you the truth or not, call those guys and, and they will get you set up with arrows and they're actually very affordable. So custom arrows that are very affordable and are matched for your bow, check them out. Next one, Venado. Venado makes lifestyle brand clothing. And so if you're going out and you're buying, you know, shirts or hats or, you know, fleeces, sweatshirts, whatever, you know, that the reason I started buying from Venado was just because that actually the dollars that I'm spending actually goes to a hunting, uh, a pro hunting company. Like I like that rather than going to Kohl's and just buying whatever. Um, I, I like to just spend the money with a pro hunting company. So definitely go check them out. It's Venado, V-E-N-A-D-O. And then the last one is Onyx Maps. If, if you haven't used Onyx Maps, they are an awesome, phenomenal uh, GPS mapping app that shows you topo lines, satellite maps, um, private public land boundaries. You can drop waypoints. Uh, they got all sorts of stuff in there. But anyway, I pretty much am on Onyx every day during season you're just sitting there scanning 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 and thinking about what other spots you should have sat <laughs> it's really what it comes down to so all right so without further ado we will bring on garrett and say what's up man how's it going thanks for having me on yeah yeah you bet so um yeah talking the pre-rut rut so, you know, scrapes, rubs, bedding areas, does flying all over the place, bucks coming through. It's the time in the whitetail woods that everybody loves to loves to sit. Like I was thinking about it earlier today and uh, we're recording this podcast here in, in uh, mid-ish September because Garrett is going to be stuck in the woods and it'll be impossible to get him on a podcast <laughs> in late October. Um, but I was thinking about it today. I was like, man. You know, if, if, if I go out to a piece of public and there is like a decent, a, a pretty nice eight point that comes by or, or a decent 10 point, do I shoot them or do I want to wait for the pre-rut and the rut just so I get hopefully that, that, you know, that action that everybody hopes about. <laughs> that's, yeah. That's one of those things I was thinking about. I was like, why am I being so stupid? I, I'm going to shoot it. I know I am, <laughs> but um, so yeah, you, and last year you had a phenomenal hunt. We were talking about it right before we started a phenomenal hunt. And that was a piece of public, a brand new piece of public that you were scouting, right? Yeah, it was pretty much the first time I had hunted there. Now I had scouted it a few like spring and winters prior to actually hunting it. Okay. And so I kind of had a vague idea for like what buck side was there. I had found a few sheds there, but I never really had hunted it. And so that was the first year where, cause it, it was a longer drive for me. That was one of the main reasons. Um, ah, sure. And so I was like, if I, if I want to travel to this place, like how many deer am I driving past to get to this area? But it, it, and <laughs> yeah. part of it was just like, okay, well, there, there might be less people hunting here, a little bit lower pressure than the stuff closer to my house. And that was a big part of it. I felt like I could get away from people and mm -hmm. there seemed to be a decent amount of buck sites. It's like, okay, let's, let's put some time into this. And I really hit that season pretty hard. It was probably more in season scouting, even, you know, through all of September and early October than I had done on any piece probably prior to that either. Gotcha. Yeah. And, and real quick, I, I got a few questions on that right away, but uh, 
uh, tell people a little bit about about you or give people a, a spiel or whatever where you're from how long you've hunted type of hunting you do things like that yeah i grew up in wisconsin really started probably getting into bow hunting a little bit more seriously back in like i want to say around 04 05 and have since you know kind of you know grew up gone to college in the twin cities and then just got a job and basically live here in the twin cities you know minneapolis area now and so now I have a lot of good public within, let's say, a two-hour drive, and then plenty more if I want to drive further than that. And so really that's kind of afforded me the ability within those two states to hunt not only cattail marshes if I want to hunt those, but I can hunt bigger woods if I want to hunt those. I can hunt river bottoms. I can hunt hill country. I can go up and, and hunt like the, the true, you know, big woods in northern Minnesota or Wisconsin if I really wanted to and, you know, play with the wolves and whatnot. But <laughs> it's... uh it's given me a lot of opportunity, I think, to, to really kind of hone in and, and just see, you know, what experience and what type of habitat I like and be able to learn a lot as I'm continuing to hunt every year. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. So have you hunted, have you gone and like hunted all those different types of topography and vegetation? Yeah, I'd say I have probably with the least amount being like the, the far Northern parts of the state. Okay. I've gone up and done a, a bear hunt up in like the boundary waters area of Minnesota. But as far as deer, I typically stay, I don't know, maybe half latitude of the state and further south. Sure. Uh, so do you have just, a favorite? Favorite type? I, I used to say, I used to say early season cattail marshes, probably my favorite and rut hill country. But now I'd almost lean towards potentially river bottom being my favorite to hunt. And I got to drive a ways to get to good river bottom area uh, just because of the stuff that's close to me is pretty heavily hunted but it's really fun hunting that type of habitat in early season. And then during like the pre-rut, I've grown to really start liking the kind of pseudo big woods where you maybe have some ag, but it's kind of mixed with bigger woods, but it's enough wooded area to kind of keep the hunting pressure low. And then late season, I really don't have a favorite, I would suppose. Um, okay. And then like true, like prime rut chasing, I like hill country just because of the funnel aspect of it can be a lot more defined. Sure. Okay. Yeah. That makes, that makes a lot of sense. So, and when you say, I'm trying to think of where I want to go here. I want to, I want to follow up on that, but I want to jump back to the buck story that we started on. So, so it was, it was a piece that was further away. How did you pick out this piece um, from like a satellite map? Like you said, it was, it was a longer drive. You went and scouted it a few times for this big buck that you got last year. Um, how did you even like think to look at it for the first time? Uh, I was just kind of looking at the public land available and the stuff I had been hunting and just kind of expanding that radius out away from my house and just seeing what else is out there. If I want to drive an extra 15, 20, 30 minutes yeah. beyond what I had been. And that, that just increased the number of opportunities, especially in like Northwest Wisconsin, there's public all over the place if you're willing to drive to it. Yeah. And so I would just look at the places and, and try to look for familiar types of habitat. Like there's a lot of and, and even those bigger wood areas, there's a lot of marsh type country mixed in. Mm. Uh, it might always not be cattail marshes. It might just be more of that wiregrass marsh, or it might be wooded swamps like spruce swamp or, or something like that. But it was familiar right. enough where I could look at an aerial and say like, oh, I bet a deer is, you know, that, like that oak island out there looks pretty good. Or mm. there's a really good transition line here with, you know, red osier dogwood and whatnot. And mm. it's like, I can, I can really easily e-scout this, but I definitely want to go in and and uh, spend some time scouting in the winter and the spring when that stuff is frozen. And yeah. so a lot of it was kind of predicated on trying to get to lower hunter numbers 
with the hopes that I could, because around the cities, there's like beast tactics are very well known and they're very well applied. And, and there's still, <laughs> there's still a lot of land, but I mean, you can go into an Oak Island that's a mile and a half, two miles deep into the swamp and find trail cameras and tree stands and whatnot. <laughs> uh, so I figure if I, if I drive further out, there's just less of a probability that I'm going to run into to that type of thing. Yeah. And even that hasn't really always been the case. I think the stuff that looks really obvious still tends to attract lots of hunters eyes, even if it is, you know, kind of out in the middle of nowhere, just depends mm-hmm. on the piece. Uh, but I've gone into areas where you get that nice little grove of tamaracks out in the middle of the, the swamp and right at the point there's a tree stand or there's, you know, screwing steps <laughs> or ladder stands. Like some of the places I find ladder stands, it's like, man, that must have stuck a lot of work to get that thing back here. Dude, I, yes, I agree. <laughs> I found some ladder stands where I'm like, you know what? I'm not even going to call this in because you are dedicated. Right. <laughs> like, it's like you, you earned this one, man. I, I will give this one to you. Um, yeah, you know, that brings up a good point because, so I have, I have private property that I can hunt and it's an hour and a half from my house. Um, and, and then it's like a 10 minute walk to a tree stand that I already have set up. Right. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> or I can hunt the public by my house, but it's like some of the areas I'm going are a mile and a half to two miles back. And that's about an hour walk or so. And then I'm dinking around and trying to pick a tree and get set up and stuff like that. And that's another half hour, half hour, 45 minutes to like really figure out where the heck I'm going to be and get set up and all that. And, uh, so I started to realize when I'm, when I'm scheduling out my hunts and I'm like, all right, I need an hour and a half, you know, to get to the tree. And I want to be in the tree by, by three o'clock. So I need to leave, you know, at whatever one 30, so I could be to the tree by three and get up. I was planning the exact same time frames for the public land. That's close to my house. Like it's a five minute drive versus the private land that it was an hour and a half away. Cause I was just spending, it was, it's either am I walking or am I driving? Right. And you bring up a, a great point there is because, you know, you can either spend, you can hunt heavily pressured public land closer to the cities, but you're going to spend an hour and a half to two hours walking and wading through swamp and all that. Or you can just drive an hour and a half and then spend less time walking. You know, maybe you're only going 20 or 30 minutes deep, you know? So yeah, it's, yeah. it's one of those trade-offs. And I, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. And the other thing that you brought up that I, I think a lot of people miss is how easy a piece is to be e-scouted, you know? So like when you're sitting down looking at a piece and, and if you have three, four, let's just say four pieces that all are whatever, an hour and 45 from your house, roughly. And there's one that you're like, wow, there are some very defined edges here. There's a nice point here. This looks like a great little Oak Island. Like you, if you have the choice of the four, you're going to the one that's easier to e-scout, right? Yeah. At least that's your starting point. And I assume that's what you did with, with this piece. You kind of just like picked a bunch and then went and checked them all out and then figured out this one had the best sign. Yeah. And, and I spent a lot of time just on that one in particular, because it had a lot of familiar things. Okay. And if you remember that, like, what was it 2019? I think it was, there's a lot of like a whole big, like series of storms came out, like through a lot of the state. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of like down timber because of that. Well, that went and like changed this place a little bit. Cause there's quite a bit of fallen timber there. And in some of the other places I've been scouting, I was like, well, that might actually help in, in some regards. 
but it made yeah. travel a lot more difficult. And so uh-huh. I had, we had to kind of almost start from, start from uh, like fresh, like just totally square one. But what it also allowed us to do is find places that we wouldn't have otherwise walked and looked for okay. and places that I wouldn't have known to go to just by e-scouting, like stuff that just didn't really stand out to me before. Mm. And then I get out there and walk it and I was like, oh, like this is looking pretty good on the ground. You mark it on the map and you, you'll continue scouting that day. And then you get back and you're like, wow, this is, uh, this was kind of unexpected. What else looks like this? And then you go to that next spot that kind of looks the same and maybe it does, or maybe it doesn't have sign, but you do that enough. And it was like, okay, we just got a whole bunch of really good spots that were not obvious by e-scouting. And meanwhile, some of the stuff that looked good on e-scouting was still good stuff because it was still hard to get to and, and people can only hunt one place at a time. But by being able, like we never, I don't think we ever ran into a hunter last year. Like we would bump into on the trails and the, the parking lots and whatnot, but like we never walked in on another guy. We never had somebody else walk in on us. Uh, we had a couple of trail cameras out and there were occasionally guys that would walk through. Um, but it was, it was much lower pressured overall. Just I think it was in general, less obvious. Uh, for the sign that we were able to, yeah. to find. Yeah, that speaks a lot to, to boots on the ground scouting versus just doing everything over the internet, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so then when you walked, when you walked this piece, um, how about, how about we, how about you tell the story of this deer that we're talking about the, the buck you got last year. And then, and then we'll kind of backtrack and fill in like how we got to hunting that during the pre-rut. Sure. Sure. I almost kind of tied together, I guess, in a certain sense in that when we first went in there, we, we really didn't have any trail cameras out there until like, like mid October is when we went to place our first cameras and we had okay. done some walking around and scouting early season, hunt, trying to uh, do some hanging hunts, uh, you know, shot a doe, but really was struggling to find where the buck sign was early season. You know, it was just kind of big timber and, mm-hmm. um, it was hard to pinpoint stuff. Food was all over the place. Lots of brows, lots of acorns. And so we would see deer commonly, but finding the big buck sign was a little bit different, but we would occasionally find really big tracks in the, the logging roads. And so gotcha. it's like, we know that there's big deer out here. Uh, that, that much was just clear. I mean, I, th- I think a lot of times people will, you know, we always talk about like four finger tracks. But I think a lot of times, at least what I used to do is you used to see like a three and a half finger track and try and convince yourself it was a, really a four, <laughs> you know, cause like, oh, this is a pretty big track. You know, it's just about four fingers. But then when you see a true four finger track, you're like, oh, like this is a different thing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it's very, it's very rare. Like I've only, like there hasn't been that many deer that have, you know, big enough tracks where you can like lay your whole hand in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but it's exciting when you find one and that mid-October time frame, it's like, okay, let's, let's get out here. Let's hang some cameras. Let's try and find some fresh sign. Well, we get into one of these areas and it is torn up. Like there's fresh grapes all over, like within like the last couple of days, like it had just erupted. What is, what is like, uh, you said, what is this? You got into like this area. Is that like a a one, a one acre kind of area or was it like some, I think think if I had to put an acreage on it, I'd say maybe like, it's 80 or hundred acres. Okay. So um, all of this pretty, bigger, pretty big area, much larger piece. But, yeah. But a lot of diversity within that, that chunk. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. So like 80 acres within like thousands of acres. Sure. Um, okay. With gotcha. lots of diversity, lots of edge. And, and so we were walking through this and kind of walking the edges and there'd be scrape here, scrape there, 
fresh, you know, chest high rub here. And we picked one of those scrapes that looked like it had been pretty fresh and put a camera up over the top of it, put a couple other cameras out. And that very night, uh, the deer that I ended up killing was, came to that camera at like 11 PM and hit that scrape. I was like, Oh, like this is, this is, uh, you know, Go four finger, this, right. Right. <laughs> it must be right. And there's a yeah. couple other deer that didn't have like as impressive racks, but you saw their bodies like later in the year and they're like, Holy cow. Like maybe that was the four finger track guy. <laughs> like he just looked like a horse. Yeah. Um, but the, That's awesome. but yeah, that kind of like gave us the confidence after checking the cameras the first time, like, you know, a few days later as we walk through, it's like, okay, well, this is clear. I mean, we knew from the sign that there were big deer in the area just because again, you see those tracks like in the scrape. Mm -hmm. um and, and we tried hunting right away in some of those areas in a couple different spots uh, but never quite connected uh, but what made it very challenging is we'd be going in there that you know third week of october by this time and not and being able to find fi sign being able to find these travel corridors and and having a pretty good theory of what the deer were doing but missing the puzzle piece that was where are these deer most likely bedding you know, we'd find beds, like we could find beds in the edges of like beaver swamps or, or just transition areas, or maybe next to a log, but it wasn't like that really obvious cattail marsh type of bedding. It wasn't like the really obvious hill country type of bedding where you might get them on a point or down in a, a low bench or something. Mm -hmm. And that was the biggest struggle. And then at certain times we would just kind of walk through there on a scouting mission, like hoping to bump a deer up just to figure out that piece of the puzzle. Yeah. that was like we were just assuming like they got to be betting here and we set up close to it maybe see a deer maybe not but just constantly being surrounded by that sign and then maybe setting up on a particular spot seeing like a you know basket rack eight pointer and then maybe seeing a different one and each time we would check the cameras we would notice that like a lot of deer were using the area and they would use it pretty consistently but on a specific deer level there was a lot of what seemed like randomness like you might have one deer that would hit a scrape and he'd be coming from one direction one day and you hit in the afternoon. Okay. He's better right over there. Right. Well, then he's not on the camera for the next two days. Next time you see him hit that same scrape, he's coming from the opposite direction, like the same time of day. And it's like, okay, well that just like blew that theory out of the water. Yeah. But I think part of the problem was there was a lot of places where those deer could bed. Like there's mm. bedding opportunities all over the place. Yeah. much more so than like the isolated bedding scenarios you might get in a river bottom or, or you know some of those other type of habitats and there's a lot of like low to the ground cover like there's big trees mature trees whatnot but there's also a lot of younger saplings and brush and the occasional blowdowns and mm -hmm. well, like you saw the video like that's what a lot of those would look like yeah and so there's just a lot of opportunities for number one you to walk right by a deer that's bedded and just kind of watch as you go by <laughs> number two just a lot yeah. of a lot of locations where they could be and even though there's not extreme like you know terrain there there's there's enough change in elevation where if there's little wind they can still kind of play those thermals pretty well especially because mm -hmm. like a little bit of water involved and so sure. that kind of throughout that rest of that uh month of october our plan really was like let's see if we can kick that deer out of his bed and if not like we'll just hang up on good sign and and hunt it and so we just kind of bounced around the, that area. We had a big cold front late October, got some snow on the ground that made the, the sign super obvious. We caught that bucks. We caught that bucks track in the snow. We knew it was Tim. Cause we later confirmed 
via trail camera that he had gone through a spot at like 10 in the morning. Okay. And we, we found his track and we followed it back. We're like, okay, we're going to find him where he's bedded today. Yeah. By the, by the time we got close, the, it started to warm up. The snow had started to melt. The track started getting kind of mushy to the point where it's like, man, it almost kind of now looks like his track is going the other way. And we kept following it and we got to kind of this dead end almost where there's a thicker area of blowdown. And we followed it in a couple of different ways. We couldn't quite find the track. We're like, did he backtrack? Like it almost seemed like just based on his tracks, he had gone in as just kind of kind of like hitting that line, checking for does. Yeah. On that scrape line. And then made his circuit, turned around, came right back, is I think what he did. And he just didn't go past that camera again. But the snow was <laughs> the snow had melted enough where it left like if the snow would have stayed another hour or two longer, like we probably would have been able to figure that out pretty easily. Yeah. But it made it a little bit more challenging. I think I have a decent idea of probably where he was bedded now because I've done some additional scouting back in there uh, after the season. But yeah. at the time, this was still like a big puzzle for us. Yeah. And, and there was yeah, a couple of it. other, and there was a couple of other deer back there that I probably would have happily shot as well, just because they seem like older deer. Mm -hmm. um, that one definitely had the most impressive rack, but I mean, any of those, like, I don't know, two, three deer back there, I probably would have been pretty happy with. So on any of those setups, I was just kind of hoping for like one of those to come through. Yeah. And so that was kind of like, you know, a new challenge because you, you see, and I think a lot of times when we consume this type of content about late October, it almost seems like you should be able to find some secluded scrape near bedding or a community scrape, primary scrape, whatever you want to call it, hang a camera up on it and then just monitor it and stay out. And that buck's going to hit it every day at night. And then he's going to start hitting the daylight. And then once he hits it in daylight, then he go in for your kill. They're right. It's just like that, that wasn't at all like what was happening out there. <laughs> And these scrapes were not like field edge scrapes. You know, they were all secluded scrapes. One of them we had a camera on. There was a, a buck that hit it in daylight every day for, I think, 14 or is he 14 or 17 straight days. There's a daylight buck on it. Uh, all different ones. Like not one deer that like hit it the same, like two days in a row type of thing. Mm -hmm. But just like a little bit of randomness. But it was obvious, like those were hitting it all the time. It's just like a very obvious primary scrape. Um. So we felt like we we're always in the game. We we're just kind of playing the chess match, hoping that eventually we'd wind up in the right spot. The other thing that was interesting is that you get these pseudo, I call them travel corridors a lot because that seems to make the most sense. There's kind of pinch points. A lot of times the deer might run like a creek or they might run the edge of a beaver swamp or they might run the edge of an old clear cut. But it's not a hard pinch point or travel corridor in the fact that if you bumped them, they could just dive off into cover. It's not like right. a bluff gap where it's like, okay, they're going to have to like cross here. Right. Crossing. And so we would sit those too. And I remember one day we were sitting on the edge of a beaver swamp and I could glass on the other side. And I just saw a big eight pointer just walking right along the edge of that beaver swamp at like 11 in the morning, late October. Yeah. Like, Man, I'm on the wrong side. I was like, can I, can I like run over there quick? But it was just too much to like cover. Like I wasn't going to get right. there in time. Um, but I, and I've talked to other people who have hunted that same type of like rolling kind of habitat in like northernish wisconsin yeah and you know a lot of them their sort of strategy is to sit that kind of pseudo you know travel corridor or funnel and just sit it for two weeks straight on a good wind and eventually get to get a shot at a decent buck right um, we're trying to be a little bit more pinpoint about it than just setting up on the same place over and over again that sounds and, boring and to, yeah <laughs> well, the other the other thing i found interesting was you know, when we were looking at some of the, the cameras, you'd have 
you'd have bears go through or a coyote would go through, but it didn't really seem to affect what the deer were doing. And you would even yeah. sometimes have hunters with a walk through, but it would just be like an occasional thing. Like they just walked through once and that was it. Like it wasn't like they were going to a tree stand every day. Mm-hmm. And it didn't really seem like it affected the deer's patterns too much. Like you might have a guy walk through and then like four hours later at dark, there's like an eight pointer walking through, like that just goes right along that same trail. Or it's a yeah. black bear that walks through and then there's like a doe and a fawn that go through like an hour later. So it almost, it almost kind of seemed like just in the same vein that they're always kind of constantly keeping tabs on predators. If it was like a transient or occasional thing, it seemed like they didn't really get bugged out by it as much as if they were to like smell you while you were in a tree. Right. Or if you were to, you know, do the same thing over and over again and become kind of habitual. Yeah. Yeah. I remember, um, uh, last year I talked to Zach Farenbaugh hunting public Mm -hmm. and he was saying very similar. He likes to really, really hunt on the ground. Like that's his thing now. And, um, he was saying there is a major difference between getting smelt like from a tree stand or even when you're just standing there versus a deer picking up your ground scent a few hours later. He's like, there is certainly a big difference because I, yeah, I think he used like if a coyote, like you would see coyotes come through and then you see deer an hour later, 30 minutes later, come through. It's just, it's, it's different to them. It's not like that predator is in the immediate area and I need to bolt. It's just like, Oh, it was here, but that's gone now. Yeah. I mean, if they busted out of the country, every time that they had a coyote within range, like they constantly moving around, you know? Right. Yeah, exactly. Even in Nebraska, when we were out there, we could, we were glassing one morning a doe and a fawn and there was a coyote out there with them out in just this wide open grassland. And they weren't really running. They were just kind of keeping enough distance away from that coyote that they didn't really feel like under duress. Right. So yeah, it was kind of interesting. That's pretty cool. That was probably a neat scene to watch. Yeah. Um, so, you know, as October kept kind of rolling along and we started kind of, you know, breaching into even early November, we're still kind of doing the same thing. And, and the rut sign was starting to pick up a little bit, but some of those scrapes were still getting open up. They're still getting hit and mm-hmm. you were getting some bucks that were starting to cruise, but it almost kind of seemed like there was a mix. Like it wasn't just full on. It was almost kind of like the rut phase activity was kind of, you know, slowly spread throughout that like mid October to mid November or like whenever the rifle season started as yeah. opposed to it just being dead. And then all of a sudden like a whole big flurry at once, it seemed like sure. it was more spread out to where you had a pretty wide window where there was good hunting. And we got to the point where we had kind of been hitting that same like 80 hundred acre area, you know, not, not every time that we go up, but we'd hit it probably three, four times on actual hunts, which is, a lot like it can be a lot just depending like per on, week you know, or like in per... total like okay. we, we did more we would do more scouting than actual sits so like we okay. spent a lot of time just getting like boot scent in the area gotcha uh, trying to figure stuff out but like actual sits i mean i feel like an actual sit in those areas where you have a lot of deer bedding around like is like we were talking about earlier that can be pretty impactful so we're trying to be pretty careful about when we would actually set up and hunt versus when we would just take a scouting loop and see what sign was fresh and what was not and what new rubs were opening up and, and what tracks were showing up in scrapes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's a unique, that's a really unique point in the sense of like, like most people view, like if they go out there, that's pressure and that's an issue for the deer. So if I go, I'm going to sit. 
because like that's that they're virtually the same thing. And you're saying that it's different, that if you go out there for two hours and do a big loop, that is far different than if you go out there and sit for whatever you do your walk in and you sit for two and a half or three hours, then you leave. Right. Yeah. Cause then that, uh, yeah. And that makes sense. Cause that's that all of your scent is in that one area. And if they pick you in that one area and you're, it's very strong and you're right there versus ground scent that you were in an area for, you know, three seconds and just walk through. It's different to them. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we would try to as much as possible, not dive through like right in the cover that we would anticipate deer bedding. Okay. Try to try to not walk right on the deer trails, although sometimes you couldn't avoid it. We would try to check as much as possible, the periphery of that area and just kind of like hit the scrapes that we knew were there, hit some of the, you know, choke points around water and, and things like that, where we know we could check sign and there's still, you know, corridors that we would go through and, and they'd be the same trails that the deer were using. We tried to minimize it as much as we could. Um, well, eventually we got to the point too, where we we're kind of looking at maybe some of the pictures that we had collected and all just kind of the conglomerate of sign that we had seen over the last, you know, several weeks. And we're thinking, you know, maybe we need to expand the search a little bit. Like by okay. that point, I think, I think we had three or four pictures of that particular deer and most of there's I think two pictures were in daylight the rest were at night no consistency like all all time like one was 10 in the morning one was like two in the afternoon one was like four in the morning like like one time we actually we got a, a like a suite of pictures where we had like like two cameras like along an edge and you could see him like four in the morning he hit one then he hit the other and he came back and hit the first one like he was just doing that quick loop again huh like checking that area like he was just doing yeah. that circuit but he did it four in the morning uh, and then there was like that first night where he hit that scrape at 11 at night so and one thought that came through our mind is maybe he's like betting like several different locations not just like cooped up in one spot but it also kind of seemed like he was like we drew if we drew a circle around all the places where we saw a sign that we thought could have been his like when we go into these areas, like this area is like, it was pretty far back there. It wasn't like we would just show up and, and hit that one area. Like it was, there's a lot of walking to get to there and we would always take detours and just check stuff on the way to get back there. Yeah. And some of those detours, it's like, oh man, look at this. It's like, a, you know, six inch diameter rub that's, you know, mid chest high. Like that could have been him. And then there's like some place in a logging road closer to the vehicle where it's like, there's his track. Like, or, you know, could be his track. Yeah. A big one regardless. And we, we drove kind of like a circle around that and made like a, uh, you know, some people have called them like egg shaped home range as well. We only had enough data points to make it basically look like just like a swath. It's like, okay, well, we've seen his sign in this swath of land, maybe a mile long. So we've been spending most of our time on one edge of it, like one, like the bo- you know, bottom side of it. Let's, let's try the other side and let's just, we have a strong South wind. Let's just still hunt kind of through this area where we have seen what could be like the other end of the sign that we've seen of him. Yeah. And just, you know, we got that strong enough wind that we can kind of still hunt it semi-effectively, you know, worst case scenario, we learn a lot. Best case scenario, we find a tree to set up in, um, and anything could happen. Cause it was by that point, early November. Mm-hmm. And so we did that plan. We saw some areas where there was, you know, more scrapes again, more rubs, saw some hunter sign, you know, trail camera, 
I don't know if we saw any tree stands. We definitely saw a couple of cameras. Um, moved around some other thickets and little ponds and, and whatnot. And one of the ponds we went around had what appeared to be like there wasn't much of a heavy trail around it, but there was like a fallen over spruce tree and it had a bed next to it. And as we continued to wrap around that pond, there was like a thigh sized rub that had fresh bark on the ground. Um, and it was a big rub. I think that was one of the ones we showed in the video. And so we kept working our way through that area and up in this little ravine and it, it's thick. This is like now getting into the type of terrain and habitat that you can see like a, the kill area where it's just, like you can't see that far on the ground. You definitely couldn't see very far if you're up in the tree. And I spotted a buck just kind of like cruising maybe 60 yards, if that in front of us. And so we tried to like grunt at him and, you know, make, deer-ish sounds as we kind of slowly worked our way through behind that visual cover to see if we couldn't get closer to him by the time we poked yeah. out like couldn't quite see him anymore it's like okay well you know he went that way like maybe let's just see where he went there's a trail here maybe another year will follow we did that and we get up to the spot and it's like man there's a big scrape right here there's you know let's just set it out a little bit it kind of seemed like we we're getting close to about the area where we'd almost pop out like kind of close to where we started okay so you know it was early afternoon it was windy it was hot it was like 68 degrees like just ready for kind of like a kind of almost like ready for a nap anyway yeah so <laughs> we find this deadfall to sit over and it's like it's just you know if a deer does the same thing this other buck we saw just did like this will be a place where we can sit and have an opportunity we both had our bows we just had one camera and you know, we always kind of like we we're both hunting at the same time my wife and i it, like we've gotten a little bit better now in terms of like if she's hunting i'll just leave my bow at home and if i'm hunting she'll leave her bow at home it just makes it a little bit easier yeah but this was still back at the time where like it was kind of that weird like oh i don't know who's gonna like shoot like you know if we see yeah. like, a smaller buck like awesome like i'll grab the camera you try and get them but if it's like a big one then like she's <laughs> like more than happy to grab the camera and, and start filming that's awesome. You married the right lady. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, so we sat up on this, this deadfall that had a big root ball and the root ball was giving us some front cover. Sun was still high in the afternoon sky. So it was kind of blazing off of us a little bit. And we set the camera up in between us and we, we just did some setup stuff where I was like, no, we like, we can't, you can't sit like this. Like, you know, we got to, like put your feet over here. Like I'm gonna have to move like this way. Like basically going through the effort of trying to pre-plan exactly how we would need to set up and how we'd need to move if something happened so that we didn't get caught off guard. Yeah. And in hindsight, it was obviously a really good thing that we did that. Because <laughs> if we would have just like plopped down on the log, we would not have been ready because we had about probably four or five seconds to like truly get things going before he was like onto us. Yeah. We we have like these little Marco Polo groups, like some of our friends and like during the deer season, we'll like, you know, shoot a polo, like, Oh, I'm set up in this spot. Like you, you know, see what I can see, whatever. Yeah. We did one of those. Um, and then like, it honestly wasn't, you know, a couple minutes later to just a, a quick like camera update for what was going on. And I think between the time we did that camera update and when the next clip started, when the deer came, it was like less than five minutes. So I see a rack moving through the timber 
and at the time I, I didn't register that it was that deer. I just, I was a nice buck. And so yeah. like, big buck, you know, and then, you know, Sam, you know, quick grabs the camera, pulls it up. I was just focused. I picked my bow up and I got to full draw right away. Cause he was just walking up this ridge and kind of had his head down sniffing. And then, you know, he kind of slowed down, took a look around, took a couple more steps, looked around a little bit, stood there for 30 seconds, look one direction, then another, take another step or two. And I was how, how far away is he? 25 yards. <laughs> when, I, okay. when I saw him, he's like 30, probably 35. When I saw the first glint of antler and between the time that it took me to pick my bow up and get to full draw, he probably worked his way to 25. And then he okay. might've gotten like another few yards past. It was about 20 yards where they actually took the shot, but I was fully prepared for him to get up to that scrape. And it was going to be a pretty easy shot at that point. How far was this scrape? 16, maybe 16, 17 yards. 60. Oh man. I mean, it, it, just in general, it's, it's, it, go check out the video. If, if you're listening to this, go check out the video on YouTube, but, uh, just like on the ground, 16 yards, giant buck in a scrape. Like that would have been nuts. The way, it, the yeah. way it played out was, was I think is even cooler, but still that would have been yeah. crazy. Like he, there's a good chance if he would have gotten to the scrape or like if he would have walked to it and not maybe smelled us, like he might've seen us just because once you got past that root ball, there wasn't a ton of cover hiding two people just sitting on a log. Yeah. So there's always <laughs> that chance, but, uh, yeah. the, the way he was kind of standing there, I still had that really good front cover of that root ball. Uh, but I didn't quite have a clear shot because there were some like little twigs and stuff on that root ball that were kind of obstructing the path my arrow would have to go. Mm-hmm. I don't remember how long I was at full draw. It seemed like a long time, but he started acting like something was up. Sure. His body language changed a little bit and he didn't quite have that same easygoing demeanor as when he first kind of came walking up that ridge. Mm-hmm. I almost kind of figured, you know, it's like this, this seems like an hour and ever type moment. So I'm going to see if I can get a clear shot. And if I do, he's close enough. He's not going to have time to like jump the string that much at that distance. He's not going to have time to alter the shot a ton. I know I can place it pretty good at that range. And so I leaned out kind of forward in front of that little, you know, twigs that were on that root ball. And I checked down and verified, okay, my broadhead's definitely going to clear now. And then I transferred over to like looking at the deer and, and he was quartering two, but his chest was kind of like turned facing us a little bit. Yeah. And and so I just put that pin basically right, right in the center of the chest, you know, left and right and kind of right where the base of the neck was meeting the, the mm-hmm. rest of the, the chest and shot and the arrow hit like right exactly where I was aiming. Uh, and the deer, deer took off and like literally two bounds and we couldn't hear anything else. Like it just, it was like done. Like we, it was so windy. We couldn't really hear where we went. We were trying to listen and hear, but we didn't hear anything after those first two bounds, but we knew that the arrow was like a full pass through when I hit him like right in the middle of the chest. And so like at that point, like we're super excited. Cause I'm thinking I got a really good shot. Like, I, you know, yeah, like I'm thinking I'm pretty much just like perfect shot for that angle. So like to try and manage excitement a little bit, I was like, okay, well, let's watch, you know, calm down. Let's watch the footage or whatever <laughs> where he went. Like we didn't hear him crash. So we got to be somewhat conservative play back to footage. And when I played back the footage, I was like, oh no, like I didn't think he was quartering two as much as he was. I thought he was more frontal. Mm. And so I knew that that arrow probably exited like mid body of the far side. 
Sure. So I'm thinking like maybe it exited stomach, maybe it exited liver. Like for sure, I got probably the near side lung. May have gotten that second lung also. Um, but it also looked like on the footage, like there was blood coming out right away. And so I'm like, there's like pretty good chance I hit an artery, like regardless. Well, as it turns out, I did hit a lot of like big vasculature, like arteries in the front of the chest and the arrow went through the heart also. <laughs> and so that deer was, was piled up 60 yards from where the shot was. Yes. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. It's, it's, it's amazing how like the world changes when you look through a peep site. Like yeah. when you're, when you're looking at that deer, even when you're watching deer on TV and then you draw and you look through your peep, like kind of everything goes out the window. Like, and you're like, all right, is he, is he quartering two? Is he straight frontal? How, how, where do I need to put this pin? And it's one of those things that like, every time I draw on a deer, it's one of those, like, unless it's a perfectly broadside and they're like feeding and you don't even have to think about it then it's just like, yeah, this is just like target practice at home, but that's rare, rarely what happens, right? You, you draw, you look through their peep, they're still walking, you got a bat at them, you know, and then you kind of like find your peep again and now you feel rushed and you're going crazy <laughs> and then you just <laughs> let it rip, right? So it's one of those, uh, um, yeah, it's one of those things that, that the world through a peep site's just different. Yep. Um, but that is, that is so awesome. Uh, uh, a, a great shot, 20 yards frontal on a beautiful, was it, was he a 10? Did you say? Yep. Well, yeah, yep. he had a kicker on his brow time. So he's 11, but okay. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much a clean 10 with that, that kicker. And you think you're pretty certain it, he's the one that you've kind of been like milling around after for the last three weeks. Yeah. Yeah. I never really like hundred percent confirmed. Well, I guess we did. We did confirm that that was like the tracks that we saw probably even early season were probably his, but it took him that long to, it took us that long to finally like meet up with them. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. And, and it, and you went to this whole other, other side. I love the fact that you still hunted for a whitetail. Like that is something that really intrigues me. I've tried it a few times with, with not a lot of success. Um, so you mentioned that in that scenario, it was a high wind day, right? Yeah. So like, is that what's high wind? Is that like 15 plus? Yeah, like I would say 20? so. I mean, yeah, like 15 plus, if you got a tree canopy, like there's a lot of noise cover there and there's a yeah. lot of movement cover. And once the leaves are down, there's not that much movement cover, but there's still quite a bit of sound cover, especially mm -hmm. with as many like treetops as you got in that type of area, like low line cover. Yeah. So we got those crunchy leaves that just seems to really, it really helps cover up that noise of you walking for sure. Yeah. So, okay. So di I mean, the hunt is awesome. And I want to, I want to like dissect it a little bit so that anybody listening can start to, to apply some of the things that you did to, to their own, to their own scenario this, this fall. Right. So the, I, I really liked the multiple, the, the cameras on scrapes, like you did that to try to find specific, like, or is there a good buck in here? Right. Is that like, yeah. and, and what it time, was... I mean, you mentioned multiple times you're looking for a pattern pattern. There just wasn't one. Yeah, I would say as much as anything, it was like, I guess, number one, to see like what was back there making the sign. But number two, like you said, is trying to like figure out what they're doing. And mm -hmm. we learned a lot when we were out there just walking, but looking at the, all the cameras and conglomerate at the end of the year, that taught us a lot also. Mm -hmm. And that's all information we can apply the next year because, you know, there's other bucks that were back there. Well, if they show up again, like maybe they'll do something similar. 
Like there are some, yeah. there were some bucks that would only hit certain cameras. There's other bucks that would be, they would find themselves in all the cameras. And then there'd be other bucks that might only hit like the other cameras. And so mm. it's like, you know, just look at that. If that buck shows up, well, he's probably, his core area is probably on this side of where we had, you know, those couple of cameras. Sure. And, and that might be, you know, a helpful piece of information that we're not going to have to go through again next year and, and sort of figure out on the fly. Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. H- hindsight on this, on this specific deer, do you think you would have been able to, to kill him without trail cameras? Or do you think the trail cameras played too much of an integral part? Would you have been stuck on that 80 to hundred acres on the other side, on the other swath for longer? I don't think so. Okay. I think with, without the trail cameras, the only difference it would have made is not knowing what was out there. I would have been like, just like totally happy, like shooting a different buck and just assuming like, Oh, that might've been the biggest one back here. Like who knows? Right. Right. Like the trail cameras in that, in that purpose really just said like, you know, here's the deer that are back here right now. Um, gotcha. Otherwise, I mean, just hunting the sign. Cause like, here, here's the other thing about the cameras is that seeing how sporadic the sightings were and the fact that not a lot of them, you know, maybe 50%, if that were daylight, it almost kind of told us also, like, maybe you're not in the right spot. Like maybe if you were closer to where he's bedding most of the time, you'd get more pictures, you'd get more daylight pictures, yeah. you get more like dawn and dust pictures. And, and that was kind of true, I guess, with, with maybe a lot of the deer that were back there. There were some younger ones that would be on the cameras pretty frequently, mm-hmm. but yeah, I, it's interesting to think about for sure. No, that's a great, I mean, that's a great point is what, uh, what's not there, right? When you right. set out a camera, everybody always wants to focus on what is there, um, what's there and what's the pattern of what I'm seeing. And, and a lot of people don't focus on, okay, if I was closer to his bedding area, I'd probably get more photos. It probably wouldn't be less sporadic. It probably, like if he was, if, if we were in like right in his bedroom on this or on his first stop, it'd probably be more frequent and it'd probably be more consistent, you know? Um, and, and so do you think that that scrape that you killed him near, do you think that is, was more of a primary core area scrape for him? I think it, it probably wasn't. Okay. I think the area that I think he actually may have been bedded in actually wasn't a spot that we hunted at all last year. Okay. It was like further on the end of like one of the sides of that swath that we hadn't quite gone back deep enough into. I think that's probably where he was like his like core bedroom most likely was for a lot of the, that time frame. Um, so I think it just so happened that we met up with him on one side of his range. Sure. Um, and it, it could have been that, you know, we met him on a different spot. Uh, just that's the way it worked out. Yeah. Okay. No, and I, I mean, right time, right place, right. That is, that is uh, every hunter, like every year that's every hunter is right yeah. time, right place. Right. And that's why you have the beginners that go out there during gun season and shoot the biggest buck ever that anyone's seen on that property. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Right. Um, so, okay. So, and so the trail cameras, they helped, they weren't a defining, you you don't have to have them. And that's one thing that, that, um, I want to, I want to help eliminate barriers for people is like, you don't have to have the money. Like the deer hunting isn't about money. It's about time. Right. And, And knowledge. 
So the other piece that, that really sounded like it really helped you out was, was the tracks and the rubs and looking at maps and trying to guesstimate where these core areas were for him based on the sign that you're seeing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. If you were to say like one thing killed that deer is probably just like spending an absurd amount of time in the woods. Like, yeah, we, we, you know, typically bounce around. Like if you don't, that was one thing that having pictures of, of that deer and like some of the others did is it made it seem like it was well worth our time investment to just keep hunting there. Um, sure. Whereas if we didn't have the, the pictures, like we like, Oh, let's go try this other piece of public and like, just see what's out there. Like that's how a lot of my hunting historically has been like, I'll just bounce to place to place to, to just, you know, enjoy figuring new stuff out. Um, mm-hmm. But, but certainly when it comes like, the cameras obviously didn't give us enough intel to where we made a move to kill him. Like, right. It was just spending a lot of time out there and keeping an open mind and trying to find more like, I guess in the, on the ground or, or, you know, on a tree or on a scrape information that could fill in the gaps between what we're seeing on the trail camera. Cause what we felt like what the trail cameras were giving us wasn't enough. Right? Sure. It was just like small pieces of the puzzle, like little pinpoints here and there, but, you know, it was pretty clear that we were going to have to, you know, spend enough time to where we finally were in the right place at the right time. I think that's yeah. what it ended up being as much as anything. Okay. Awesome. Yeah, no, that, that's, that's really helpful. And I, and I, I mean, you hunted this one, these, this 80 to hundred, then you go went out and checked out this other piece. Um, was there, and you hunted it for like three, four weeks, you know, and that's, yep that that's a lot of time to understand and put the puzzle pieces together uh, on a piece. And now you have all that data for next year. Right. And, and right. it's not like you're totally going to abandon that piece and move on to another one. You're going to keep, keep an eye on it and see what you can find there. Yeah. Unless there's like 20 hunters there next year. <laughs> there's always that risk. <laughs> right. Yes. Yes. There certainly is. I know. And you're, you're pretty brave showing some of that uh, satellite imagery on, on the YouTube, which is great. I mean, I, I appreciate it and trying to understand, you know, there's only so much you can learn from the actual f- footage behind uh, of the camera lens. Um, being able to see it from a high level is, is very, very helpful mm-hmm. um, in, in helping people learn to get better. The, so then the, the aspect of still hunting, it wasn't that that was your, your plan was still hunting, but it wasn't necessarily because that's what you wanted to do. It's because like, that's what the weather allowed you to do, I guess, if that makes sense. And you didn't necessarily know what you were walking into. Yeah. As, as much as anything, I would say that, you know, our, our plan maybe wasn't as much still hunting as it was scouting with our bows. Okay. And if we found something good, we were going to set up, but because it was so hot, because it was so windy, I mean, we started using, you know, Spartan forge and it was saying that it's going to get better than it is, you know, now in a couple of days when, you know, the weather conditions are going to change. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, let's, we had hunted that morning. Like my wife almost it was so close to having an opportunity where she was going to shoot an ice buck. And then it just like, after that nice golden hour in the morning, the wind picked up and it got really hot, like it just seemed like very unfavorable deer hunting conditions, especially for that time of year. It's like, yeah. man, let's just, let's just scout. Like we got our bows, like we're back here. Like let's just spend the whole day back here and just see what we find. But we yeah. of course try to do it with the mindset of if we do find something to set up on, we can. 
And so right. in that, that same you know, line of thought, we kept the wind generally in our face for the direction we were traveling through the cover, but okay. we were kind of zigzagging along transition lines within that yeah. tra- travel area. So mm-hmm. most of the time we had a crosswind unless we were like turning around and going along another transition. But generally sure. the direction we were going was, was, you know, into the wind, like facing the wind. Yeah. So, that, so we weren't blowing deer out like ahead of us. Uh, and, and where we ended up setting up, the deer kind of came from the same direction we had just walked. So like the wind was like almost in his face. And I think that's like what eventually made him start to act a little funny. So I think he probably could smell us. Uh, but I think it was maybe like just uh, just like a little bit, like maybe just a, a tiny little bit of wind hit him. It wasn't like a full blown, you know, shot yeah. sent in the face, is what I'm kind of presuming, because sure. otherwise he probably wouldn't have stuck around as long as he did. That, <laughs> that was kind of like what our our mindset was. Like it kind of was still hunting, but it was kind of also just scouting and also just kind of spending time in the woods with a bow just in case. Mm-hmm. Well, that, I mean, that's what you do in early November, right? <laughs> you never know. It's it's funny because I mean you always hear stories about guys that are like oh I just went out to run quick like check a carg or whatever in November and and a big buck came in chasing the doe and I didn't my bow with me like how often do you hear a story like that? yeah and so it's like I don't want to be in the woods especially that time of year without a weapon right uh, everybody even if we are scouting oh man I yes everybody ha- has done it and I remember one time with a buddy of mine. We were hanging, so Wisconsin's gun season starts the Saturday before Thanksgiving, and um, we were just hanging up a ladder stand for gun season, and I was with him. We were on a a side-by-side, had the ladder stand in the bed, and it was like November, I don't know, 12th, 13th, 14th, something in that range, heading up, up, up a hill through a cow pasture, and there's a little thin strip of trees, maybe like 30 yards wide, and we're, we're going through this. And we hit a big rock and, and it made a loud noise under the, uh, uh, on the undercarriage of the side-by-side. So my buddy's like, Ooh, we better look at that. <laughs> and so we stopped while we're stopped. Here comes a buck pushing a doe and he beds with her within 20 yards of us sitting in the four wheeler. We're sitting there and he was, he was getting out of the door and I was like, dude, stop, 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 stop. Don't move. And it was an eight point that we had on camera and it was, um, it was his private land. And he was like, he was on the fence about shooting that deer or not. Cause he was like, man, he's like three and a half, um, maybe two and a half, but three and a half for sure. Um, I don't know. And at that moment in time, he was like, damn it. I wish I had my bow. I would shoot him right now. (laughs) (laughs) uh but yeah i i agree i mean it's one of those things that like when we loaded up the four-wheeler we should have been like someone grab a bow just in case (laughs) Mm -hmm. um so no that's that's awesome and so you guys worked your way through was that the first that that tree what'd you call it a tree um the root that was sticking out the root ball yeah it was a it was a deadfall so it was like an oak tree that had fallen over okay uh but but when it fell over like the whole root system came out with it yeah and so like it wasn't just like snapped off like the whole thing came out of the ground and it left that sure. big like on the back side of the root ball is like this big cavity where it used to be like a big hole yeah um but yeah that that root ball was still full of dirt so it wasn't just like you know sporadic little fingers of roots like it was just this big you know circular disc it's like you're sitting behind a shield yeah no it's yeah it's pretty it's pretty cool and one of the things that garrett did and, and i already told him this so i'll just tell the listeners 
after he shot the deer, he went to where the deer was standing with the camera and filmed back to what he looked like to that deer, which I thought was awesome, especially being on the ground. Like what could the deer see from hit from his angle versus what could we see? And I, th- I thought that was really cool. But before you found that root ball, had you stopped and set up anywhere else still hunting? Or was that the first spot that you stopped? No, that was the first place we stopped. <laughs> so what, what about that spot made you stop to say, Hey, you know what, let's sit here for how long did you intend on sitting there? Half hour, an hour, probably an hour. Okay. I think the, the fact that we saw that buck moving through there right beforehand, okay. that was a big piece of it. Cause sure. remember in our, in our minds, we're kind of thinking like, man, you know, the conditions aren't really all that great today. So like, we weren't really expecting to see a lot of movement like you would if it was like 20 degrees. Yeah. Like calm and crisp. Mm-hmm. And so we weren't going to set up unless something looked great. But then that buck came through and I was like, yeah, like, you know, maybe like for all we know, a hot doe just like went right through and that's just one buck in a line. And, and maybe that's what happened. I, I don't really know. It's hard to, to say for sure. Um, but it was enough for us to say like, let's just sit here for a bit, you know? Okay. And, and that was, that was kind of the deciding factor. Like it, uh, if we had just seen that deer randomly throughout like open timber, then we might not have. But the fact that everything else kind of made sense, like there's a big scrape there, like the, the ground cover was pretty good. There was beds that we had found pretty close by big rubs, like that just kind of all added to the, the lure of just sitting there for an hour. Right. Do you think you would have without seeing that buck, if you, when you stumbled onto that, do you think you would have been like, man, this looks pretty good. We should find a spot or, would you say like, this looks pretty good. We should probably come back and hang a camera here and keep moving. Well, we definitely would have been Mark, marking more pins. Like all that <laughs> sign we would have found, we would have been marking pins for all that stuff. Like if we, we'd already been marking all the beds that we found and all of the big rubs and, and all the scrapes that we would find, like there's pins all over this place. <laughs> stuff that we had scouted. Looks like um, a gumball machine when you zoom out. Yeah. Yeah. So it, <laughs> it definitely would have been something that we were very interested in coming back to. Uh, even if we hadn't decided to stop there. So, okay. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it was good that we made the decision to sit there. We probably would have, you know, just based on the fact that we'd been walking all day, like we might have sitting down there anyway, just to take a breather, eat a sandwich. Know? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe take a nap, hide. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. So then, I mean, yeah. And that's an awesome story. And then, you know, the buck came in and all that. So in your, in your travels around, you know, in the late, the late pre-rut, kind of the early rut, you know, you, you'd mentioned that that was the first buck in what could have been a long line of bucks. Have you ever had that happen before where it's just like a buck parade one after the other, after the other? No, I've, okay. I've not seen it personally. Um, I feel like it in some regards probably has maybe a lot to do with the buck to dough ratio. And what phase of the rut is it? Is it like sure. the first estrus doe on the front end of the bell curve? Or mm-hmm. is it, you know, right at the peak of the bell curve where there's a whole bunch of does in heat at once? There was a, a metro hunt that I did in the Twin Cities where every year the first like weekend of this, you know, very strict hunt is doe only, like Ernabach basically. And over the years, this place has just kind of morphed into like an absurdly out of whack buck to doe ratio, like maybe five bucks for every doe. And this one of the, like the second weekend was 
pretty much a rut time frame and not a lot of people had been seeing deer that day but one of the guys on that hunt was like i was in it like he had this like 160 class 12 pointer that was just like buried in this thicket with a doe and there was constantly like you know like i think he's at six or seven other bucks that were like make like trying to get into that thicket and then the big one would run them off like your stories <laughs> about that and i think yeah. it was kind of you know expounded a little bit by the fact that the buck to doe ratio was so extreme as it was mm-hmm. and certainly if that doe would have you know kicked out of there and tried to to bolt there would have been eight bucks chasing right after you know yeah yeah it's almost like i'd rather as that doe you'd rather just stay and be defended <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> uh yeah i and i've never i've i've like somewhat had that happen i've had four bucks with one like bopping around one doe before on a piece of public and I don't know, I, I agree. I don't know what causes it. It could be the time of year. It could be just the fact that those four bucks all ended up wanting to travel in that same area that day. And they just like ended up there or maybe they all smelter from downwind. I, I don't know, you know, they all, none of them came, like I had the wind in my favor and none of them came from behind me. So I don't think they were downwind of her. I think they were all just kind of headed in this direction, making a travel route and it just so happened that they were all running the same direction that day you know is that that bit of randomness there but i do think you know um that there is something to it when you see one buck traveling a line during the rut like traveling an area like that is usually a good sign and and obviously for you it was a great sign (laughs) yeah okay there's a buck right there moving through there let's let's take a seat yeah i've had that happen before where I see a buck in that time, like second week in November, walking up through the hardwoods. Like, okay, you know, cool. And then a half hour later, another one does the same thing. And it's like, okay, I heard Adam Hayes say this once. It's like, if a deer makes a mistake, shame on, on him. If he makes it twice, shame on me type of a thing. Yeah. And now, like, pretty much if I see a buck during that time frame, just kind of like walking, like where he maybe shouldn't even be walking, it's like, okay, I'm, I'm cutting my stand, you know, down here, I'm, I'm taking everything out of the, t- the tree and I'm just hightailing it over to right where that happened. And I'm popping up in a, a tree right there because it could be that same type of scenario where, you know, it's just like one of a number of bucks are going to walk that same line that day. Yeah. And you don't like, I, I probably, even after you kill them on that, you might not never know why. Right. Right. Even after you get a shot, <laughs> I don't know why they wanted to walk this line. Maybe this is a line of hot doe walk four hours earlier and I never even knew. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, I, wish, I wish sometimes we had the ability to smell like what a dog <laughs> or a deer could smell. It's like, we would learn so much more like, Oh, I'm not going to hunt here. Cause some guy was in here yesterday. I smell, <laughs> but, you know. <laughs> yes. For sure. It's like, yeah. Okay. You've, you've, we've invented glasses to help our eyesight. Let's figure out something to help our nose. You know, some hunters, some hunters going to invent that at some point, And then they're going to realize that none of that scent elimination spray works. <laughs> I was, I was talking to uh, a sheriff once and, and he was saying that, that I think that exists. Like they have, I can't remember what the thing's called, but there's some like $20,000 piece of equipment that's intended to like sniff out drugs, basically kind of like, like the mechanical equivalent of like a, you know, canine really uh, in, a, in a drug unit. Yeah. So it exists. I don't think it'd be very, I don't know how practical it'd be, 
Like I'm sure it's looking for very specific compounds that it can like sort out. Yeah. But it probably doesn't have the capability of like an animal to be able to, you know, decipher what these millions mm-hmm. of chemical compounds are and convert them that into what it actually is. And then like have the ability to decipher between like, oh, this is person A and this is person B, you know, that's pretty crazy to think about yeah. you know, how, how good they really can't smell. I know it, it is, it's, it's wild. And, you know, I take my dog with me all the time on my public land walks and he will bark at, um, coyotes and deer and bobcats. And that is it. He doesn't bark at squirrels, doesn't bark at coons, doesn't bark at rabbits, nothing else. Only the, only those things. And I know because I've had them run those run after those things previously. And that's the only time he ever like lets off. So it's always interesting. It's always, I always wonder, you know, when we're walking through a piece of public and he gets, he gets going, he's a hound. So he's, he gets going like that. And uh, I always wonder, okay, what was that a deer, you know? And so then I kind of, sometimes if I think it's close to the bedding area, I'm like, all right, well, that deer has (laughs) gone. So I will go check this out now. Um, or if it's coyote, you know, figure that out and just to just take a look. I, I really enjoy taking him on my, um, my spring walks, um, you know, cause then he, he will bust all the deer before I ever do, you know, I can't remember who I was listening to or what podcast or, or where it was. Um, maybe it was even your podcast. I can't remember honestly, but it was somebody was saying that they would go and like scout and do whatever with their dog so that. They'd rather have the deer spooked by their dog than spooked by them because then like the deer's associated whatever bumped him out of his bed as, as being a, you know, a dog and not a person. So right. they go in and check the bed out, like learn whatever there was to learn. And then that deer is more likely to like come right back to that bed than if a person had went and bumped him out. Yeah. And I, and I have said that before, but certainly I've heard that from other people as well. And it is 100% a theory. There is zero scientific evidence to back that up. <laughs> I think I, I use it as like a, an, uh, an excuse that I make up for myself to just bring my dog with me. Cause I always, I always feel bad when I don't take him and I'm going on a scouting trip because I'm just yeah. like, you know what, you could really get some exercise. You've been in the house for the last five, six days. You haven't done nothing. You're getting fat all right, I should take you out, you know, and let yeah. you do what you're meant to do and bred to do. So, um, so, okay. We, I mean, we covered a lot of, a lot of sign played, a, played a lot of roles in defining this buck Um, the scrapes certainly played a role. The rubs played a role, um, getting out there and just spending a lot of time. And the other big one that I think a lot of people really need to, to do as well. We, we spent a lot of time on electronics, um, but I also think printing off maps and doing that circle technique that you had uh, with the sign, I think that's pretty important. And that really starts to help you like visually see where are all these overlaps. And the other big thing that you said and kind of glossed over is, is you mark all these points all the time. And I know for me personally, there are, there are certainly days where I will walk through a piece of public um, and I will mark a bunch of points and a travel route or, or a corridor or a path that deer would typically take do not like a path doesn't cross my mind when I'm out there. And then all of a sudden I get home and I look at this from an aerial view with all these waypoints and I'm like, Oh my God, there is a very clear line from point A to point B on how these deer move from this to this. Like I may have taken, you know, the biggest zigzags in the world with 
you know, 40 different bends, but it's very clear that the deer are headed based on the sign that I found are headed from point A to point B. And here's the route that they like to travel. Yeah. Yeah. I love doing that. Even like spring scouting, it's just, it's not just all in the field. It's not all just looking at maps. It's like that back and forth, constantly mm -hmm. going back from, from big picture to little picture and then back to big picture. And then you're, you're seeing those patterns from like a, a larger scale. Okay. Well, maybe that means I should go check this area. I'm going to go check it out on foot. It just seems to like feed off of itself and seems yeah. to be a lot more efficient when you're looking at both in conjunction with one another. Yeah, I, I certainly agree. And, and with me, it's really helped me. Um, a, a piece that I think of where I have had last year, I drew on a really nice eight point based on this. I was, I was hunting this kind of marshy area on this piece of public and it's really, it's, it's a great marsh. Um, I found a couple of tree stands in there. One, one of the dudes hangs his stand in there every year and he is just a total jerk. Um, I've ran into him a few times. Another dude um, just essentially has a permanent stand back there, but it's starting to get pretty rough. Um, and I, but there's a lot of deer sign. There's always good scrapes. Um, there's, there's every year they're fresh. I've had, I've put out cameras out there and I've gotten great deer. I have one 10 point that would probably break like pretty darn close 170. Like he is just a giant. And so like what, after I saw him and he did exactly what the buck that, that you um, were talking about that you killed did, he went through an area and he hit two of my trail cameras and then turned around and hit them both on the way back. And I never saw him again. You know, <laughs> um, that was, that was it. He came in on like October 22nd. And then he left on October 23rd. He spent one day in this area and then he never came back. And I've never, and I've talked to a lot of people in the area and a bunch of different public land hunters. I never heard of him getting killed or anything, but the, the big piece of what I'm trying to get at there is, is I couldn't tell what the travel route these year were doing or where they were betting. I just knew there were really good scrapes in the area, but I also, the, the trail cameras helped me. Um, but also the waypoints helped me because the trail cameras told me that a lot of these scrapes were nocturnal. Like mm -hmm. I wasn't getting good daytime activity on any of these, even in late October, um, early November, I wasn't getting a lot of good daylight activity. So my thought to your point earlier was like, what am I missing? Like, where am I too, am I too far away? So what I, what, where I was, was like, if you envision a, a, a trail system um, and it's a mile long, I was literally at the halfway mark and that's where all the scrapes were at the 0.5 mark. And so that's why I was getting all these nocturnal, um, photos when I started to, to push my cameras out, um, to the left and to the right, closer to the, you know, 0.1 and 0.9 miles, I was getting more daylight activity. So it was telling me that these deer were betting either on this far side of this trail system or on this other far side. And, and one of the far sides was private. I didn't have it. I did not, don't have opportunity to go there and they don't hunt either. Um, I've talked to that landowner. They've, they just have a really nice tree farm and the deer just love to live in there and they have apples and yada, yada, everything a public land hunter does not want to hear. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so it makes you think that they just live in there and they never come out, but that's, that's where they were. But then the other side was this really, really thick area. Um, and I had never even wanted, I've looked at it multiple times and I've never wanted to walk through there ever. 
Um, and I, 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 one spring I walked through there once in like February and I won't go back through there again. It was awful. Like on your hands and knees going through it. But that was, that was like the, the bedding area that I could hunt. And I set a camera on a scrape outside of that and bam, I started getting good daylight activity, you know, and it was, it was far back. You couldn't really tell it was there. Um, and you really, you almost had to go around like a corner of a cattail marsh to get to it. Uh, so it wasn't obvious at all to other hunters. I never had pictures of other hunters in there. So it was, it was a great spot. It's a spot I sit every year now, um, depending on it's a, it's great for a, for a West wind, uh, a North, a Northwest West wind. Um, and it's gotta be, you know, late October, but I've had multiple last year. I had a great eight point in there. And then two years ago, um, I shot at a really nice 10 point in there. Um, and I hit a branch straight out of my bow. And, uh, unfortunately I hit that deer in the leg. Um, he lived, I had pictures of him chasing does a couple of days later. So not, not an issue. Um, I feel really bad about it still, but anyway, so that was, that spot has offered me a lot of opportunity and it's all because of the scrapes, finding the scrapes and then doing the waypoints and then backtracking that to like where I thought those bedding areas were. And these opportunities both came, one came right away first light. He was coming in to the bedding area and the other one came at last light where he was coming out. So it was, it, it was great to have that aerial perspective is really what I'm getting at. And that's like, I never would have found that without looking at that from the macro and then diving in, like you were saying to the micro. And now you're, you're dealing with a five acre piece and you're trying to figure out, okay, how can I best set up within this five acre chunk to get an opportunity at, at a deer coming out of this area. Right. And, and that makes it just like in my scenario, it sounds like in your scenario also that sign that's in the midpoint there, that's like a really great place to go and just spot check. Mm -hmm. Like, is there, are there big traction up in these scrapes? Cause if there is, then maybe that, maybe there's a good deer in that bedding area that I'm going to go on now you know? Yeah. Yep. Exactly. And I have, I, uh, and one of the things that I always like toy with the idea with, um, is like, if I set a trail camera up on the scrape now and someone else finds it, are they going to think it's good? Because that's like the scrape that they hit when they come out of this bedding area, it's not big. It's not big at all. Um, but they, they almost all like, I feel like most of the bucks that use that area hit it. Cause it gets hit for sure. Once every 24 hours by a buck during the pre-rut, if not, you know, one night, one night I had three bucks over 140 hit it. So it's, um, and, and it was all, you know, nocturnal activity, but, um, it just tells me that like, even that the size of that scrape doesn't matter so much because it's just the right spot. So they just kind of come in, yeah. they do their thing and move. Whereas that midpoint where I had my cameras initially, where I was getting all nocturnal activity, that was a Mondo scrape, like size of a car hood. And it was just like, holy crap, this is, this is where the deer are, but they are just two at 2 AM. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think, I think some of the biggest scrapes that I found were, like you said, there, there were on corridors with bedding, like adjacent both directions. But then the bedding that was nearest was doe bedding. Like there'd be mm -hmm. a little hillside that had like a bunch of does bedding in it. Yeah. And so I think those bucks would cruise from their respective beds and hit that one community spot and the does would drop down and they would leave their scent on the licking branches. And it was just gotcha. like that big conglomerate of sign, but 
but that again made the buck sightings at that scrape super unpredictable mm. yeah that makes that makes a lot of sense um yeah so i guess that the lessons learned there is if if the buck movement's unpredictable on a scrape try to figure out where like are there other scrapes that they're headed to or other direct where they're headed to like are they headed to a bedding area are they headed to another scrape are they headed to a food source and figure out like try a different scrape like see if you get that same buck or not you know and if if you do okay cool is it earlier is it later than usual uh or maybe it's 100 percent random like you have <laughs> and then you're just like ah, i don't know i don't know what to do now <laughs> keep looking and spend some time all right, last last question before we sign off here. I know we're at like an hour 15, hour 20. Do you do you utilize or believe in moon phases? I'm open to the the possibility that at some point there might be strong enough like I guess unbiased data to to say yes or no. Um for me right now it's not a major factor. Okay. Like I'd, I'd, I'm not going to plan trips around the moon. I'm not going to not hunt because the moon isn't good. Um, but if there is like a good moon thing going on, like if it's a red moon day, like it might make me a little bit more excited to be in the stand, you know, but that's yeah. about the extent of it, at least for right now, unless, unless I see like, cause I'm as just one hunter, I can't build a big enough data set myself to ever right. make something statistically sound enough to say, yes, this is the way that it is, or this is the way that it isn't. But you know. Is Spartan is Spartan Forge doing that? Yeah, they are. Yeah, but it, okay. with with like moon weather, like a whole bunch of different factors. Yeah, that interests me about it. I don't I don't have it yet. Um, I don't have Spartan Forge yet, but I have seriously considered looking at it just for for that specific reason. Um, just the the data on that side of stuff. I'm I'm in the exact same camp as you. Actually, it's not gonna make me not hunt or hunt either way like if i have time i'm i'm very likely to go as it is um you know but at the same time i would like to know if the data suggests that certain moon phases are more effective for buck movement during daylight hours than others i feel like that would be fun to know and it wouldn't like like I said it wouldn't make me hunt more or less it would just make me more confident in my sits i guess yeah if that right if that makes sense like you wouldn't be sitting out there like am i wasting my time so like this weekend right it's september 16th right now wisconsin opens up this weekend two days from now um i wasn't going to be able to hunt opening day and just uh yesterday my wife's volleyball team she had a tournament on opening day. So I had both my kids all day, every day or all day, Saturday, and most of the day Sunday. So they got canceled. And now I'm like, all right, I can hunt now. So I'm going to go. It's just like, where do I go? And when I was walking outside to get my trash cans today, I look up this evening and there's like, you know, a three quarter moon out there already at six 30. I'm like, Ooh, I hear that's supposed to be good. <laughs> so it's like all right well maybe maybe i might try a little bit harder this weekend because it's going to be 85 with south south winds i don't have huge high hopes but at the same time um i'm i'm always interested in getting out you know and hunting 
it's just one of those things that all of us hunters do. Like if we have time, we go. Right. Mm-hmm. So, all right. Well, Garrett, thanks for hopping on, man. I really appreciate the insight, giving us the detail on that hunt. Um, and, and as well as your, your hunting tactics in general, um, helping everybody learn a little bit today. If people want to find you, what's the, where do you want to direct them? Probably the best three places to look would be YouTube, Instagram, and, and, uh, a podcast that, that I do myself. Um, all three are under the DIY sportsman name. So if you type that into YouTube, you'll find it. Instagram, it's DIY underscore sportsman. And then DIY sportsman podcast, which is kind of within the sportsman's nation podcast network that Dan Johnson runs. Gotcha. Um, that's pretty much primarily where I post up is, is one of those three places. Okay. Fantastic. And they can message you on those if they got questions or anything like that. Yep. Absolutely. Probably, probably Instagram is where I'm most likely to see and respond to comments for whatever it is on Facebook. I like lose track and there's like different, there's like business account and personal account and like stuff just gets lost. There's too many notifications. There's too many notifications from Facebook. Yeah. I, I do my best to like try and get back to people on Facebook, but I know there's been like times where I wake up in the morning and I like see a message notification and then like later in the day, I can't find it. It's like, well, it's like I know, I know like I'm missing like, who, like, sorry, exactly. Sorry. Like whoever this message might've come from, like, I don't think I dreamt it. Um, but yeah, Instagram usually works pretty well. Um, so that'd probably be the best. Okay. Perfect. And it's all DIY sportsman, right? DIY underscore sportsman on Instagram. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But then other ones, it's just DIY sportsman. Go check out, go check out Garrett's hunt on YouTube. It's awesome. Like I can't recommend watching that enough. It is a phenomenal, it's well put together and it's a great, like informational and, and awesome hunt. And honestly, like when you drew back on him, I was like, Ooh, frontal, is he taking a frontal on a white? Tail at <laughs> Cause I started elk hunting like, uh, what, five, six years ago. And I, like that was the first time I was really introduced to frontals because you're calling in elk and, and they're coming at you and you're on the ground. Like from a tree stand, you don't get frontals, like you get headshots. Like that's what you would right. have if you went after a frontal, right? So, and not a ton of people hunt from the ground. So it's just one of those things that's like, yeah, that's actually a really, really effective shot if you hit it in the right spot. Like extremely effective yeah. as, as you saw, I mean, picked up a ton of, uh, a ton of um what was it veins and and arteries and stuff in there and then plus the heart obviously just went right through yeah you know? yeah it's there's, there's a lot of good stuff up there i mean there's you're if you're off left or right a little bit you get into trouble it's not quite as big of a kill zone as an elk but on a close <laughs> shot where you can pinpoint it like it's if you hit it where you're supposed to it's a really really lethal shot right yeah awesome All right. Well, thanks, man. I I really appreciate you hopping on. And uh, for everybody listening, if you enjoyed the podcast, you want to hear more about this stuff, um, more whitetail stuff, you want to follow the whitetail series, um, please hit that subscribe button. We post uh, episodes at least every week, if not two a week during during season, Um, get you guys information as as fast as we can, different tactics, different hunting scenarios, Um, trying to get information that applies to everyone. And if you're not hearing it, please find me on Instagram. That's where I'm most active. Find me on Instagram. Or I do have, I do have a lot of TikTok followers now. So I'm starting to build the, the old TikTok, 
I don't have a ton of stuff on Facebook just because like you said, there's, there's too much going on there. Um, so anyway, if you, if you, if you want to find me, go to either of those platforms, um, hit me up in the, in the DMS and I will certainly respond. And I love to hear your feedback. It, it helps, helps me build who I want to invite on the show and, and what people I want to talk to. So thank you. Appreciate it and catch you guys next time.